Amen. If you could turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. If you're wondering where 1 Peter is, 1 Peter is in the kind of the, the last third of your Bible. It's in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to be starting at verse 5 today. We're not going to end there today. We're going to be looking at a lot of scripture this morning, but we're going to start at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. As you guys are flipping to that or scrolling to that, can I just show you guys something? Um, many of you guys know that here at Thrive, we exist for five purposes called A-E-I-O-U. In fact, that's our vision statement. If you know it with me, why don't you say it with me? Uh, it's here at Thrive, we exist for five purposes called A-E-I-O-U. A is for alive. It means we're here to worship Jesus. E is for expectant. It means we're here to grow into Christ-like disciples. I is for involved. It means we're here to serve God with our talents. O is for out loud. It means we're here to lead others to Jesus. U is for united. It means we're here to love our spiritual family. And our dream is to build a church of 10,000 A-E-I-O-U leaders in the city of Vancouver. Come on, give God a big big hand here in this place. That's the vision of our church. That's our vision. That's our vision. And uh, it's kind of cool. Uh, I know the high school ministry at our church, they uh, did uh, pumpkin carving this past weekend, I think. And, uh, and so this is an A-E-I-O-U pumpkin. Check that out. Isn't that kind of cool? Isn't that cute? It's got a candle in there. It's going to light up later on. I'm going to pass this back to uh, you guys here. Thank you so much. Uh, tell person, you can have them say, you were made to be A-E-I-O-U. Amen, amen, amen. So I hope you came here alive. I hope you came here expectant, expecting that great things are going to happen because get ready for something really cool this morning. If you believe that, say amen. amen. Let me begin with a story this morning. How many of us know that sometimes true life is stranger than fiction? And this is something I found very interesting and quite funny as well. See, there's a, there's a man and a woman, their husband and wife, they lived in Kansas City in the States, and they were not getting along at all. In fact, this man one day said to the wife, he said, you know, I am so sick of being in this home with you. I would rather be in jail for the rest of my life than to live in this home with you. And so you know what he did? A few days later, he decided he'd go to the local bank near his house. He went up to the bank teller. He showed them a note. It said, I have a gun. Give me some money. And then what the bank teller did, he saw the note. He said, okay, um, according to policy, he gave him about $3,000. And the man took the money, but he didn't run away. Do you know what he did? He went to the lobby of the bank, he sat down, and he waited for the police to come. The police handcuffed him, the police put him in jail. Finally, when the police questioned him on why he didn't run away, he said, it's because I would rather be in jail for the rest of my life than be with my wife at home. Incredible, eh? And when it came time to sentencing this man, he went before a judge, and the judge said this. He said, normally, we would sentence a bank robber to many months, even years in jail. But in this case, I'm sentencing you to six months house arrest. Six months of you need to stay at home with your wife, and you cannot leave. Isn't that crazy? Sometimes, sometimes, you know, true life is stranger than fiction. If you believe that, say Amen. And it seems to me that that couple, and especially that man, could have really benefited from a series that we're doing here at Thrive right now. It's called Sweeter Than Honey. Everyone say Sweeter Than Honey. And this series is all about relationships. It's because we believe that there's nothing more precious and there's nothing more important in your life than your relationships. More than the money you make, more than the vacations you take, more than the records you break, the most precious, important gift that you have in life is your relationships. If you believe that, say Amen. 
And that's why over the past few weeks and over the next several weeks, we have been looking at eight essential keys to having sweeter, stronger relationships together. It's a series that we've entitled Sweeter Than Honey. And, you know, have you guys enjoyed the series so far? Has it been helpful for you guys? We're going to get some great feedback uh, on the series. Uh, a few weeks ago, we kicked off the service and the series talking about gratitude. Everyone say gratitude. And we want to choose an attitude of gratitude in whatever we do. We then went on to talk about respect. Everyone say respect. How we need to respect one another if we want to have healthy relationships. Then we talked a bit about empathy. Everyone say empathy. How we want to step into each other's shoes and be able to share each other's feelings because that's part of a healthy relationship. Today, I want to talk to you about what's quite possibly the most important key in this whole series. And the reason I say that is because Jesus talks about this key more than any other key that we're going to cover in this series called Sweeter Than Honey. In fact, not just Jesus, but the whole entire Bible talks about this key more than any other key that we're going to cover in this series. And see, this key, you might be wondering, why does the Bible talk about it so much? Why does Jesus talk about it so much? It's because this key is quite possibly the hardest of all the relationship keys to learn. And it's, you, you even say that there's no key that makes a bigger difference in your relationships than the one we're talking about today. You might even say that all the other keys we're learning in this series could not be possible if it weren't for this one key. You wouldn't have empathy without this one key. You wouldn't have respect without this one key. You wouldn't have an attitude of gratitude without this one key. What is this relationship, this relationship key we're talking about today? Today we're talking about the essential relationship key of humility humility. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5, 5 to 7 together right now. Can you read it in a loud voice with you? 1, 2, 3, it says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Keep on going. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Today we're talking about humility. In fact, I've entitled this message, The Power of of humility. And it's because many people have this misconception about what humility is. See, a lot of people think that humility is about being weak. It's about being a pushover. It's about being timid and shy. It's about being a doormat that other people can step on. And I'm here to tell you today that that couldn't be further from the truth. That, in fact, it takes a powerful person to be humble. And not just that, not only do you need to be secure and powerful to be humble, but when you choose humility, when you choose to be humble in your relationships, it actually produces power in your relationships. It transforms your relationships in a powerful way. And so let's begin with a definition for humility that you can write down and take good notes with today. You can write this down. What is humility? Humility is putting others before yourself, all the while being secure in your own worth and value. Why don't you write that down? Humility is putting others before yourself, all the while being secure in your own worth and value. See, there's two parts to humility that you need to understand. On one hand, it's about stooping down to make others great. It's about serving others ahead of yourself. But that's not all there is to humility. There's another part to humility, which is being secure in who you are. It's understanding that you have worth and value in God's sight. And so being humble doesn't mean that you're really insecure. You're always looking down on yourself. You're always putting yourself down, oh, I'm such a loser. I'm so ugly. I'm so worthless. Because you're going to find this. Humble people are secure people. Amen. 
In fact, the opposite is that prideful people are insecure people. If you see someone who's you know, bossing people around, looking as they know it all, never admits their mistakes, in fact, they're actually hiding some very deep insecurity because prideful people are insecure, humble people are secure in who they are. If you believe it, say amen. amen. And that's why we're talking about humility today. Let me ask you this question. How humble are you? How much humility do you have from day to day. Well, if you're not really sure, we're going to do a little humility test today, all right? I'm sure you didn't come to church expecting to do a test. Don't worry. Uh, you know, it's not an exam. Uh, there's no huge consequences that are going to result from this, but this is just a little way for you to see and gauge for yourself how much humility do I have. And so what I'm going to do is this, is I'm going to show you 10 statements, and I want to see how many of these statements do you identify with. I'm going to show you one by one, and if you identify with that statement, I want you to give yourself one point, all right? One point. You can do this together. And this is the goal. The goal is not to get as many points as possible. The goal is to get as few points as possible, all right? You want a humble score, all right? Okay, so why don't you look at these different statements with me and see which ones you can identify with and give yourself a point when you do. Number one is, when I make a mistake, I am slow to admit it and to apologize. Is that you? Are you slow to admit your mistakes? slow to say sorry. Okay, if that's you, then give yourself one point. Number two, I am quick to judge others and to look down on them. Is that you have this very critical spirit. You're always kind of looking at people and thinking, oh, that person's, you know, not right or that person's wrong in that way. You're often, you know, quick to judge others. If that's you, give yourself a point. Number three, it bothers me greatly when people snub me or don't take notice of me. Oh, that person didn't say hi to me. <sighs> You know, you've got that issue with you. If that's you, then give yourself one point. Number four, I quickly get defensive when people give me suggestions or criticism. You just really don't like it when people give you suggestions. That's number four. If that's you, give yourself one point. Number five, I am slow to notice others' needs and to serve them. It's like, you know, other people might be really busy in the home. You know, they might be really stressed out. They might be working really hard, and you might be on the couch going, ah, just playing on your phone, doing your own thing, because you don't really notice their needs or serve them. If that's you, give yourself a point. Number six, I tend not to ask for advice. I often insist on my own way. In other words, when you're making a big decision about your life, you don't really consult anyone. You might go on the internet for a little bit and Google something, but that's probably the only thing you will do to really ask for advice. You don't really go to people. You just kind of figure things out on your own, follow your feelings. If that's you, give yourself a point. Number seven, I'm rarely honest with others about my struggles. Sometimes I exaggerate the truth to make myself look better. That's number seven. If you Identify with that. Give yourself a point. Number eight, I have a hard time rejoicing in other people's successes. In other words, you compare yourself a lot to others. And when someone else is having a joyful time, if someone else is experiencing something happy, deep down you have this tough time trying to rejoice with them because you think, what about me? If that's you, why don't you give yourself a point? Number nine, I still hold grudges against people who've hurt me badly. If that's you, give yourself a point. Finally, number 10, when I'm arguing with others, I always need to win and to show that I'm right. If that's you, give yourself a point. Now, those are the 10 statements. I'm not going to ask you what score you got, okay? But you know, you probably know. If you know your score, why don't you nod at me right now if you know your score, okay? Let, let me just tell you really quick. I'm not going to ask you what your score is, but let me just say this. is that If you scored between 0 to 2, then very likely among your family and friends, you are the closest thing to Jesus that they've ever met, okay? Is that you are so humble, people spend time with you, they feel like they've died and gone to heaven, 
all right? That's you. If, the, if you scored from zero to two, then that's you. Is that you, all right? If you scored between three to five, that means that you still struggle with pride quite a bit, but you also make a concerted effort to be humble. If you scored from six to eight, then I hate to tell you this, but you are oozing with pride, okay? You've got a pride issue. You're going to clean up that mess in aisle six, aisle seven, aisle eight, depending what that score was. And finally, if you scored nine or ten, then there is a really good chance that you may be the devil himself, okay? All right? Of course, I'm kidding about what these scores mean. The fact is this. The goal of this test is to show that the fact is all of us, in our own way, struggle with humility. We all are prideful people who often struggle with humility. If you believe that, say amen. And intuitively, I think most of us would agree that humility is an important part of relationships. I think all of us would agree on that. But what is it exactly about humility that is so important and so powerful when it comes to relationships? Why don't you write this down today and take good notes today? Let me give you four reasons why humility is so powerful and so necessary in relationships. Number one, humility makes you more likable and it makes you easier to respect. See, you're going to find that people are attracted to humility. They're attracted to humble people. When you see someone who, you know, thinks they know it all, thinks that the world revolves around them, that's not attractive at all. In fact, that's repulsive. They, they did this uh, survey um, that uh, was surveying uh, the top 10 most likable traits in leaders. Uh, this is Forbes magazine. And they found that humility was almost at the very, very top of that list. They said that one of the most likable traits of a leader, whether it's a boss or it's a teacher or it's a parent or a politician, that one of the most likable traits, one of the top traits that people want to see in a leader is humility. Everyone say humility. In fact, they wrote it this way. They said, there are few things that kill likability as quickly as arrogance. Likeable leaders don't act as though they're better than you because they don't think they're better than you. Rather than being a source of prestige, they see their leadership position as bringing them additional accountability for those who follow them. In other words, humility attracts, but pride repels. That if you're someone who is able to admit your mistakes, if you're able to put others before yourself, there's something really attractive and magnetic about that. But on the other hand, if you are prideful and you're always acting as if you are the center of the universe, people want to look at you and go, Egh. they want to distance themselves from you because pride builds walls, humility builds bridges. Amen. Pride builds walls, humility builds bridges between you and others. That's the first way that humility is powerful in our relationships. Number two, write this down. Humility attunes you to the needs of others. In other words, when you are humble, you are more sensitive to the needs of other people. You can serve them a lot better. You know, for example, when a guy and a girl start dating or they're just on that brink of almost dating, you know there's that honeymoon stage in their relationship and their emotions where they, are, they start off being so sensitive and so humble to one another. You know, you know what I'm talking about? It's always me first, or sorry, it's always you first, right? Even on the phone, you know, they're on the phone and they're, oh, I had a really good time talking to you tonight. Yeah, yeah, let's do this again. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I'm going to miss you too. Yeah, okay, okay, I'm, okay, we better go. It's getting late. Yeah, okay, all right, okay, okay, I'm going to hang up now. No, 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 you hang up first. No, no, you hang up first. No, I, I, no, 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 you hang up first. I don't want to hang up first. You hang up first. Okay, okay, we'll do it together. We'll do it together. Okay, okay. okay ready? One, two, hang up together. Okay, one, two. Did you hang up? I didn't hang up. I didn't hang up. Did you hang up? No, you didn't hang up. And you end up, you know, you know, staying on the phone all night, even longer. You maybe even put the phone by your bed while you're sleeping and that other person's sleeping because you just, you just, you're just all about you first. Right? You guys know what I'm talking about today? 
and, and, he, and see, this is the thing, is that how many of you guys know that that's how a lot of friendships and relationships start, but over time, you go back to your normal way of living. Over time, you go back to your normal way of more me first rather than you first, and you're like, can you hang up now, please? Or I'm going to hang up now. All right, bye. Because we, we, we just tend to gravitate back to a little bit of self-centeredness. How many of you know it takes a mature person and it takes mature people in a relationship or in a friendship to humbly put each other first, not just when the initial feelings are there, but even when the initial feelings go away. If you believe that, say amen. And when you have an attitude of humility, you are sensitive to the other person. You're sensitive to their needs. You can serve them better such that they'll feel, yeah, this person, even after all these years, still cares about me. Because humility attunes you to the needs of others. Number three, why don't you write this down? Humility minimizes conflicts. How many of us know that when there is no humility in a relationship, arguments will start and they will never end? You just have these incessant, never-ending stories of arguments, of conflicts, of tension. No one budges an inch. No one admits their mistakes. Everyone's just focused on the other person's flaws. Everyone's playing the blame game. Without humility, that's what happens. Conflicts don't get resolved. No one compromises. You can't reconcile. You don't forgive. Because without humility, none of those things are possible. But when two people in a relationship are humble, when they have humility in their heart, and that's how they look at one another, what happens? They can forgive a lot more quickly. They can put up with one another a lot more easily. They can deal more effectively with the stuff that comes between them. They can you know, bear with one another more steadfastly. They'll apologize more willingly. They'll examine themselves a bit more carefully before they lash out at the other person. It's because you can't resolve conflict without humility. If you believe that, say amen. Humility minimizes conflict. Number four, humility makes growth in a relationship possible. See, humble people are learners. See, prideful people think they know it all, and so they don't bother to learn. And they're always looking down on people. They don't think of anything above them. And so humble people are often you know, not improving, not growing. They're always staying in the same place. But humble people are learners. They realize that they still have lots of room to grow, and lots of room to improve. And so as a result, in their relationships, because they don't claim to know it all, they will still find different ways, even after years, to bless the other person in new ways because that person is humble. If you believe that, say amen. amen. See, for example, Pastor Charlene and me, we have been married now for how many years? 14 years, all right? Our marriage is now a teenager. Praise God. And, you know, we have been married now uh, for 14 years. We were dating, uh, you know, two years before that. So we've been together for 16, 17 years. And can I tell you this? Is that after 14 years of marriage, do we still argue? Yeah, we do. Do we still fight? Yes, from time to time. Do we still have tension from time to time? Do we still disagree? Of course. But here's the thing, is I can say without a shadow of a doubt, and if you ask Pastor Charlene, she'll say the same thing, is that we have a better relationship today than we did 14 years ago is that just because you're, you know, in year one of your marriage or year one of that dating relationship or year one of that friendship, that doesn't mean it all has to go all downhill from there because if you have a humble attitude toward one another, things can actually get sweeter over time. If you believe that, say amen. You know, I remember, you know, we used to argue about all these different things. And, like, you, the, the little slings would set us off. We'd, we'd get caught up in such small things back in the day. And sometimes we still do as well, but not nearly as much. It's because we've learned to become more sensitive to one another. It's because we've learned over time to be more humble and to be, uh, you know, more giving toward one another. And as a result, through humility, our relationship has grown. All this to say, 
You cannot have a healthy, growing friendship or relationship with anybody without humility. Tell a person to you, I need humility. Amen. Tell, tell, tell someone else, give them a high five and say, we need humility. Amen. Because humility is so important and so crucial to relationships, it's no wonder that when you read the Bible, you're going to find that over and over and over, the Bible emphasizes the importance of humility. For example, look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. Why don't you help me preach today and read in a loud voice. 1, 2, 3, it says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Everyone say, in humility. Next, let's read Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Uh, oh, oh, keep on going with this one. Yep, keep on going. Uh, verse, uh, verse 4, go back, go back, go back. Go back one more. Thank you. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Everyone say, in humility. Look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. It says, 1, 2, 3, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Everyone say humility. Look at Ephesians 4, verse 2. What does it say? 1, 2, 3, it says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Tell your neighbor, be completely humble. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, last one for now. It says, finally, all of you should be of one mind, sympathize with each other, love each other as brothers and sisters, be tenderhearted, and keep a humble attitude. Everyone say a humble attitude. See, these are just four of literally hundreds of verses in the Bible that emphasize humility. It's because God's word recognizes that you can't have healthy relationships without humility. And so since humility is so incredibly important to relationships, how do you grow in humility? I'm going to end today by talking about four ways that you and I can become more humble people. Does anyone need to become a more humble person in this place this morning? Any, any prideful people that need to become more humble? Well, if that's you, then let's learn four ways together that we can grow in humility. Number one is this. Write this down. Be quick to apologize. Be slow to criticize. Be quick to apologize. Be slow to criticize. Anyone who's quick to criticize and slow to apologize? Do you think the reverse? Because we want to be quick to apologize and slow to criticize. You know, 14 years ago when my wife and I got married, I remember our, our wedding day, September 1st. 2003, you can, if you want to get us an anniversary gift, that's our date, okay, December 1st, 2003, and I remember uh, I was in the back room in my tuxedo with my groomsmen, they're also in their tuxedos, and we're anxiously awaiting the ceremony, Charlene, her bridesmaids are in another room, and we're all getting ready, and I remember as I'm waiting, to bo- just about to go in, I asked my, my, my groomsmen, I was like, hey, because some, some of them are married, I said, hey, do you guys have any marriage advice for me, and the two married guys looked at each other, they looked at me, they looked at each other, they looked at me, they looked at each other, they looked at me, and then finally said, okay, one piece of advice, always remember, never forget the three most important words in marriage. I was like, that's an easy one. I tell Charlene, I love you all the time. They said, no, 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 always remember the three most important words in marriage. I'm like, what's that? They're like, I am sorry. It's my fault. Or, please forgive me. See, they, they, they're they saying it in all these different versions, and finally I got it. I was like, okay, I get it. You're talking about apologizing. Yeah, they're like, exactly right. And see, I thought at that moment, my guys here, my groomsmen are pretty brainwashed by marriage. That's not going to happen to me. But over the first couple years of marriage, I realized my groomsmen were absolutely right. 
That the three most important words in marriage were not, I love you. The three most important words in marriage were, I'm sorry. It was my fault. It was my bad. You know, you could, you could say it in different languages too. 对不起, right? You know, 我的错, or, or, or other, you know, like, uh, how, how do you say it in French? How do you say I'm sorry in French? Is that three words? Okay, never mind. But here's the thing. Is, is, that, is that I learned a lesson on that day and over the next few years of marriage is that we need to be quick to apologize and slow to criticize. Look at Proverbs 28, verse 13 together. What does it say? One, two, three, it says, A man who refuses to admit his mistakes can never be successful. But if he confesses and forsakes them, he gets another chance. See, when you apologize... It's a disarming effect on the tension in your relationship. You can have two prideful people who are just constantly going at it, going at each other, talking about, you did this and you did that. I find that in our relationship between Charlene and myself, the, 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 the tension starts to change when one of us says, I'm sorry. It was my bad. And notice it's not, I'm sorry, but you did this. Or, I'm so sorry, but you have no idea how much you did. No, it's, it's simply, I'm sorry. I, it's my bad. I won't do it again. It was my mistake. And so just, just for, for practice, and this, whether you're married in this place or not, why don't you just practice this with me right now. Let's get all the men in this place, okay? I want you to repeat after me and say, uh, honey. Okay, you're not talking to me. You're talking to your wife, right? Okay, you're saying, honey. Say it again. Honey, I'm sorry. It's my fault. My bad. Won't happen again. Pretty good. All right. I, I, I could see some guys like uh, tensing up a little bit, almost wanting to vomit, but that's, that's what you need to do. That's what, okay, all, all the girls in this place, okay, why, why don't you repeat after me? You can say, uh, dear, I'm so sorry. It's my bad. It's my fault. Please forgive me. That wasn't too hard, right? That wasn't too hard. Okay. I know some of you guys, you know, like feel like you need to uh, go to the hospital right now. But the, fi- the fact is this, the fact is this, is that a healthy relationship is one where we are quick to apologize and slow to criticize. If you believe that, say amen. amen. Humility is being willing to admit when I'm wrong. Now, here's the thing. When you apologize, and guys in this place, get this one especially. When you apologize, here's a tip. Do not just use the words, I am sorry, like a magic spell. Like, no matter what's going on, as long as you see something wrong, but you don't understand, just, oh, I'm sorry. That's not going to do anything, all right? You need to understand why you're sorry, all right? You have to understand how that person felt. Remember, we talked about empathy last week. You need to understand what went wrong, why that person is upset, and you say, I'm sorry, after you realize the same thing. If you believe that, say amen. 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 Here's a question for you. How quick are you to admit when you're wrong? Is it something that you will go out of your way to say, hey, that was my bad. I won't do that again. I'm sorry. Or do you have to wait for someone to really grill you before you'll even utter anything like an apology? See, clothing yourself with humility, in part, is about being quick to apologize. But there's something else about clothing yourself with humility. It's about being slow to criticize. It's about being slow to get offended. It's about not getting wrapped up uh, you know, so easily. It's about recognizing, you know what, I'm not God. And so I'm not going to expect people to treat me like God all the time. It's saying, you know, I know that this friend or my spouse or my kid or my parent is not God. And so I'm not going to expect them to act like God all the time. It's to recognize that we all need God because we all make mistakes. Amen. And see, some, something that I, I often tell newly married couples at their wedding uh, or otherwise is I'll give them three pieces of advice and you can write them down today. Whether you're married or not, why don't you write this down or take a picture of it is this. If you want a happy, healthy marriage. This is huge for your relationship. Be quick to admit when you're wrong. Be quick to forgive when you're wronged. Be quick to move on when it's not a matter of right and wrong. Amen. 
Be quick to admit it when it's your bad. Be quick to forgive when it's the other person's fault. And if it's not a big deal, if it's not going to matter five years from now, then just move on and move on because it's not a big deal. It's about learning to move on. You're going to find this, is that if you will be quick to forgive when you're wronged, be quick to admit it when you're wrong, and be quick to move on when it's not a matter of right and wrong, then you're going to weather most of the bumps in the road of your relationship. That's the first thing. Is this helpful in this place this morning? It's about being quick to apologize, slow to criticize. That's number one. Number two, if you want to grow in humility, the second thing that we want to do is be quick to learn from others. Be quick to learn from others. See, it's about being open to other people's advice, open to other people's input, open to other people's correction, going out of your way to seek advice when you need it. Look at Proverbs 19.20 with me right now. What does it say? It says, get all the advice and instruction you can so you will be wise the rest of your life. Look at Proverbs 15.31.32. What does it say? It says, he who listens to a life-giving rebuke will be at home among the wise. It keeps on going and says, keep it going. It says, he who ignores discipline despises himself, but whoever heeds correction gains understanding. What are these verses saying? It's saying... We need to be open to learning from others. We need to be open to getting advice. We need to be open to listening to rebuke. How many of you guys know that in high school and university, I did not really listen to anybody when it came to the idea of relationships? I remember when I was in grade 8, and I've shared this with some of you, but not all of you. In grade 8, uh, there was this really uh, uh, cute uh, British girl in my class called Emily. And uh, every night because I'd gone to a new school, but I still remembered her, and every night I'd, I'd look at her old school yearbook, and I'd, I'd, look, I'd open the, the, the yearbook, I'd look at her picture, and at night I'd be, ah, ah, she's the one for me. And, and, and you know what I ended up doing is, um, I, I really wanted to date this girl. I was 13 years old, really wanted to date this girl. And so you know what I did? I, I, I remember I was in the back of the car of my parents, they're, they're driving, and I'm in the back seat. I'm like, hey, ma, hey, pa, can I start dating? And they're like, you're 13 years old. You want to start dating now? Why don't you wait till university? And at that point, I had a very mature reaction. You know what I said? I was like, no, I don't want to wait till then. Why so long? University? No, I want to start dating now. And they're like, are you sure you're mature enough to start dating now? I'm like, yes, I'm mature enough. I'm mature enough. I'm mature enough. I know. What makes you think I'm not mature? Right? And, um, you know, they, they were just kind of fed up because no matter what we would, uh, you know, argue about, no matter how much we discuss it, they, they, they were just not getting their way. I was insisting on my way. And so they finally, like, you want to date? You date! Right? That, 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 that's, that's not exactly how my dad sounds, but, you know, that, that's it's kind of funny when I say it that way. You want to date? You date! And, and so I decided to do so. And I, I had it all planned out. You know, I, I decided to do things my way. You know, I, I'm, a bit of a plan, I'm a bit of a planner. And so, you know, I had this whole flow chart of how my first conversation with Emily would go. Right? And so, you know, I, I had it all planned out. Because just in case I got nervous, just in case I forgot what to say because I wanted to invite her to a movie, I thought, okay, I'm just going to lay it out on a sheet of paper so that I don't get distracted. And so I'm going to call her up and then and I'll have, you know, hi, Emily. Uh, this is Justin. That's what the J and JB stands for. This is Justin. How are you? And there's two options, which is uh, good, and then I'll be like, that's great. Want to go for a movie? Or bad. Uh, that's too bad. Can I go and comfort you? Right? Uh, just different things that I would say. Just, just different ways to plan out what I would say. And I remember, you know, what I ended up doing was I, I ended up calling her, and uh, it was her mom on the other line, and she's like, hello. I'm like, uh, hello, uh, can I speak to Emily, please? And she's like, oh, just hold on. Emily. 
And then Emily, she comes walking down. She, she grabs the phone, just, hello. And uh, at that point, I just blanked out. I had no idea what to say. I just couldn't remember what I was going to do. And so I was just like, Emily? And I just didn't know what to say. And, and, and after a while, she's like, is this, is this Justin? Uh, oh, yeah, 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 that's Justin. Yes. Uh, uh, um, uh, just wondering, uh, do you want to go for a movie? He's like, uh, it's okay. It's like, oh, well, I really want to take you to a movie. Do you want to go on Friday? He's like, I, I think I'm busy. And then I'm like, oh, how about Saturday? Oh, I think I'm busy. How, how, how about Sunday? No, no, I think I'm busy. How about next week? Ah, uh, busy. How about two weeks from, still busy. I'm like, oh, no. And then we got off the phone. It was very awkward. And that was my very first broken heart. Everyone say, oh. And you would have thought that I would have learned my lesson by then, that I should maybe get some advice in this area of relationships, but I didn't learn my lesson. I kept on going my way, and eventually, uh, you know, did I start dating girls? Yes, I did. Uh, did I start entering into relationships? Yes, I did. But every one of them was a mistake. Every one of them was something where uh, I just didn't really get any advice on what I was doing. I would instead just inform people, oh, this is what I plan to do. Oh, dad, mom, I'm dating now. I wouldn't ask for advice. I would just give people notice. This is what's happening. And each time I did, those relationships would fall apart. Each time I did, there were some huge things that I didn't consider, that I should have considered, so as to avoid my heart being broken, that person's heart being broken, and having a lot of re regrets in the process. And finally, you know, as I started to grow in my relationship with God, and I started to see the Bible talking so much about getting advice, don't reject you know, your, your leader's advice. Don't, don't, uh, don't just think you can do it all on your own, but listen and seek good advice. All of a sudden, I realized, you know what? I need to maybe start asking my you know, my, my, my parents a little bit more before I make these kind of decisions. I, wasn't, I, I was about 20 years old at the time. I remember there's a girl called Charlene. You might know her. Um, and uh, she came into my life, and I just thought she's just this amazing, amazing girl. And I, don't, I, really, don't, I really don't want to mess this one up. And so during that time, I, I finally started to get advice started talking to my pastors, people I would never, ever consider talking to about relationships before. Started saying, hey, uh, Pastor Wang, like, what do you, what do you think of Charlene? And, and I, I talked to my parents about it, and they would give me some great advice to the point where I was like, you know what? All this time, I didn't realize just how smart my parents are. All this time, I didn't realize just how smart my pastors are. And it was all this time, there was advice waiting for me to receive. I just was not open to it before, but now I was. And I'm so glad I listened to their advice. I'm so glad that I received a lot of insight from them about how to go about relationships and how to, how to, you know, how to you know, discern what is good and from what is not. Because if I, if I didn't do that, if I didn't seek their advice, I don't know where we'd be. I don't know if Charlene and I would be together on this day because that is how important God's advice through your leaders and your parents can be is that when you seek advice, he does it to bless you and to help you make the best decisions. If you believe that, say amen. Here's a question for you this morning. What are, um, let me put it this way. Are you someone who likes to take advice? Are you someone who, you know, goes out of your way to find people who know something about this area that you're thinking about and actually look for advice? Or do you just kind of feel things out yourself? Kind of just do things your own way? You know, when, the last time you made a big decision, maybe the last time you went into a relationship, last time you started dating someone, last time you made a big decision that affected you or your family, who did you consult for advice before you said yes or no? See, humility is not just about being you know, quick to apologize and slow to criticize. Humility is also being willing to ask for advice. It's about being willing to learn from our mistakes. It's be, about being willing to change. If you believe that, say amen. 
It's because we all have blind spots. All of us have, you know, areas of our lives that we don't quite see very clearly. And we need others' input to say, okay, this is what I notice. This is what I observe. Getting advice and getting insight from people more experienced than you can help you so much to go on the path that God wants for you. If you believe that, say amen. 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 Is this helpful in this place this morning? Praise God. Write, write, write this one down. Number three is be quick to give preference to others. Be quick to give preference to others. Can you think of a situation in your life where you find it difficult to give preference to someone else? Where you find it difficult to let someone else go first? Say you're standing in line for the one bathroom that's outside, and there's a long line. You really need to go. And say you hear on the PA system, oh, uh, we just want to let you know there's a second bathroom just around the corner that you can also use. If you are sitting in line or standing in line, what would you do? What would your response be? Let me give you a few options. Uh, What would you do? Option one, you run as fast as you can to the other washroom, even if it means knocking down old women and young children. Okay? Is that what you would do? Option two, you take your Bible, you put it in your shirt and say, pregnant woman coming through, let me go first. Okay? Uh, that would be especially weird if you are not a woman, okay? Uh, number three, point people in the wrong direction while you go in the right direction. There's the washroom, and then you go this way, okay? Is that what we would do? Or four, would you say, oh, please go and use the toilet. I will use the sink at the same time. Is, is, that, uh, is that something you would do? See, before you say yes to any one of these options, look at what the Bible has to say about that. Romans 12, verse 10. Why don't you read it with me in a loud voice? One, two, three, it says, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor, giving preference to one another. Giving preference to one another. Look at Romans 12, 10, which says it in a different way. Read it in a loud voice. One, two, three, it says, Be good friends who love deeply, practice playing second do you, know what, do you know what it means to practice playing second fiddle? You know, many years ago, there was an orchestra conductor called Leonard Bernstein, a very famous conductor, a world-famous orchestra conductor. And once he was asked the question, what is the most difficult instrument in the orchestra to play? And do you know what his answer was? He said the most difficult instrument in the orchestra to play is second fiddle. What is second fiddle? To be a second fiddle is someone who plays a violin or viola or, viola, or even a cello but you don't sit in first place. You're not the star. You sit behind the star, and you need to accompany them. You need to watch them. You stand when they stand. You sit when they sit, but most of the attention in the spotlight goes on the first chair, the first fiddle. Second fiddle is where you support. Second fiddle is where you draw attention to the first fiddle. And, 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 so, and, and so Leonard Bernstein says, you know what's the most difficult instrument in the orchestra to play? It's second fiddle. It's because sometimes we have a really tough time letting others go first. Sometimes it's we want the spotlight. We want the advantage. We want the attention. We want that benefit. And it's sometimes the toughest thing for us to do, because we're prideful people, is to let someone else go first. And so, you know, here, here's the thing. Humility is thinking team first. It's saying, you know what? It's not all about me. It's not all about my needs or my agenda or my wants or my benefit. But I am part of something bigger and so I'm going to be happy with those times when I need to play second fiddle. If you believe that, believe that say amen. amen. Here's a question for you. Are you someone who struggles with giving preference to others? Are you someone who struggles with playing second fiddle? Is there an area of your life right now where God wants you to think team first instead of me first? Maybe it's at work. Maybe you have a boss 
or maybe a leader in your life, and you are just really struggling to submit to that leader. You see all these flaws in that person. Oh, I can't believe I have to submit to this person. And you have a tough time playing second fiddle to them. Maybe it's in your family. Maybe you feel like you're often living in the shadow of a sibling or someone else in your family. All these good things are going on in their lives. They're achieving all these things. They're, they're, they're accomplishing all these things. All these good things and good news are happening to them. And you're just like, oh, that's nice. And you're, you're playing second fiddle. You know, let me tell you this. is part of becoming a humble person is learning to give preference to others. It's saying, you know what? It's okay. You go first. You know, we began this morning by talking about the definition of humility. I said to you that humility is putting others before yourself, all the while being secure in your own worth and value. And you know, the greatest example we see of that is Jesus Christ. Look at John 13, 3 to 5 with me right now. Read it in a loud voice with me. 1, 2, 3, it says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. Keep on going. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. What's going on here? See, this is one of the most famous scenes of Jesus' life. Even if you've never been to church before, you may be familiar with the scene where Jesus is washing his disciples' feet. And you got to understand what's going on. What's the context here? Is Jesus, he is the guest of honor at a meal. He is the star of the show. He's sitting at the head table. He is eating. He's enjoying himself with his friends, with his disciples, the people who invite him to this meal. And all of a sudden, in the middle of this meal, Jesus gets up and he goes to the side. He takes off his outer clothing and he puts on a towel. Why? Is he going swimming? No. What is he doing? He is taking on the role of a servant. He is the guest of honor, and yet he's going to put on the, 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 the wardrobe of a servant. And then he goes up with a basin of water and a towel, and he goes up to each one of the lesser guests, and he starts to wash his disciples' feet. He would put their foot into the water, and then he'd rub the dirt off of them and onto him and then he'd, he'd put their foot back into the water and then he'd rub it with a towel and make sure it's nice and clean and he'd do that for foot after foot right foot left foot right foot left foot for every single one of his disciples and people can't believe it that's kind of going to a, a like a wedding reception and could you imagine like the bride or the groom they get up from their seat and they get out from the head table and they take off their wedding dress or they take off their tuxedo and they come out like a servant in the restaurant and they start serving you you know peking duck or start serving you your new york steak they start serving it's weird people are like what's going on and the disciples they had the same kind of reaction like what are you doing jesus and see what was jesus doing he was showing us what it means to be humble he was showing us what it means to serve. And I want you to notice something about why Jesus did what he did. Go back to verse 3. Go back to verse 3. And it says, read it with me in a loud voice. One, two, three, it says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. The most important word in this passage is a two-letter word, so, so, everyone say so, say it again, so, see, because this tells you why Jesus did what he did, see, Jesus got up from the meal, put, uh, uh, took off his outer clothing, took on the robe and the clothing of a servant, and started to wash his feet, not because he felt like I'm nothing, I'm worthless, 
you know, I'm useless. I, 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 and he has a low self-esteem, putting himself down. No, much the opposite. Look at verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God. See, what's going on? Jesus was secure in who he was. Jesus was secure in his self-image. He knew where he was coming from. He knew where he was going. He knew who he belonged to. He said, I have a father in heaven who loves me, and he's put all things under my feet. And so therefore, because I know who I am, and I'm secure in my worth and my value, I can therefore serve others. I can bend down to, to help another person. I can stoop down to make another person great. Does that make sense in this place? And it's because he was secure, so he could get up. He could take off his outer clothing, wrap a towel around his waist, and start washing his disciples' feet. See, you're going to find this. What's the lesson here? Is that humble people are secure people. Humble people are secure in who they are. They're comfortable in their own skin. They know their worth in God. And so they don't need to be looking for their worth in circumstances or in people's opinions. They don't have to keep living to please people, to get their approval so that they can feel good about themselves. They know who they are because that's what humble people do. If you believe that, say amen. But on the other hand, prideful people are just the opposite because prideful people are insecure. Prideful people are constantly comparing themselves to others. And so because they're not sure about their worth and their value, they try to do things to enforce their worth and value in front of others. And so, but one thing they will not do, one thing a prideful person will not do is they will not serve others because it's just like, oh, what, if, what, what will people think of me? Sometimes they're, they're so caught up in themselves that they don't even see the needs around them. They won't even think about serving. And what does that tell you? Is that if you really want to grow in humility, if you really want to become a more humble person, it's about understanding your worth in God's sight. It's about understanding who you are and how God sees you. If you believe that, say amen. 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 See, Jesus, he's washing his disciples' feet and can I tell you, that's not an isolated incident where, oh, Jesus did that, that's done. But how many of us know that when Jesus is washing his disciples' feet, that is a picture pointing to the future. That's a picture of what Jesus would do for you and for me. Because just days after Jesus washes his disciples' feet, do you know what he does? He gets up on a cross. He takes off his outer clothing. In fact, it's stripped from him. And then all of the dirt... All of our dirt, all the dirt of our sins, our failures, all the ways we've rebelled against God, all the, all the dirt that causes us to be, you know, unholy and unacceptable in the presence of a holy God, all of that Jesus took on. And then he, with his blood, washed our sins away. See, when Jesus was washing his disciples' feet, it was foreshadowing the day when he would wash our sins away. Amen. That is what Jesus was doing. He was pointing us to the day he would be washing our sins and serving us with humility. And that's why the, the, thing, the thing to know today is that you are of great worth in God's sight. God loves you, and you matter to him. And if you ever question your worth in God, all you have to do is look at the cross. 
All you have to do is look at the cross where Jesus died. Because it was at the cross where Jesus died, where all of our dirt landed on Jesus, and his blood washed away our sins. When we had no right, and when we had no way of deserving a life with God, or a life in heaven, or a relationship with God, God sent Jesus Christ to serve us with humility. He stooped down to make us great. He put all the dirt that we had onto onto himself, and he gave us his righteousness. He cleaned us by his blood. That is what he did. And then he rose again to show that he's not just some ordinary man, but he means what he says and that he can be trustworthy. You can put your faith in him because that is who Jesus is. If you believe that, give God a big hand in this place right now. That is who Jesus is. Come on, give God a big, big shout in this place right now. Come on. That is what Jesus did for you and for me. And that's why one day when you stand before God in heaven, God's God's not going to ask you, oh, so what good deeds did you do? so that you deserve to come in here? Or, you know, were you a good person? Or do you think you're a good person? You're not gonna ask those questions. What he's gonna ask you is, what did you do with my son Jesus? Did you receive him or did you reject him? Because God loved you so much, he sent Jesus Christ not to condemn you for your sins, but so that you could be saved and he would be condemned in your place. That is the love of God. Come on, give God a big, big hand here in this place. That is the love of Jesus for you. Tell person that's to you, God loves you. Look at Psalm 1835 with me, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Read it with me in a loud voice. One, two, three, it says, you give me your shield of victory and your right hand sustains me. You stoop down to make me great. That's what David said about God. You stoop down to make me great. It's not that Jesus stooped down because he was, you know, had such a low self-esteem. He stooped down because he felt so inferior. No, Jesus, he knew where he was from. He knew that he's from the Father, that he's going to the Father. He knows that the Father gave him all things and put it under his feet, and so he can stoop down to serve others. He can stoop down to make others great. And that's why you're going to find that the kingdom of God is so different from any other organization in this world because so many other organizations, the authority structure is top-down. It's a top-down authority structure. You know, in the kingdom of God, it's the opposite. It's bottom-up. It's God stooping lower than any of us could ever stoop, and he carries us. And we, we are in his arms. He stoops down to make us great so that we can stoop down and make others great. So that you can stoop down and make your small group great. So you can stoop down and make your kids great. So you can stoop down and and make your wife or husband great. So you can stoop down and make your neighbor great. It's about a top, not top down, but it is a bottom up structure that is the kingdom of God. If you believe that, say amen. Because the kingdom of God is built on something called humility. See, humility is not looking down on yourself or beating yourself up all the time. Humility is recognizing that you've got strengths. Yes, you've got weaknesses. But no matter what, you have worth and value in the sight of God. So much so that you don't have to worry about that anymore. You can just serve others with humility. One of my my favorite quotes on humility is by a guy called C.S. Lewis. And he writes this. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It's, it's not saying, oh I'm, oh, I'm such a failure. Oh, like I, I'm, I, I'm, such a, I'm such a loser. Oh, I'm, I'm worthless. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less, putting other people in the front, saying, you know what? I'm good. You go first because I'm taken care of. You go first. God's got me. You go first. I'm loved by God. You go first. God's got me. He's got, he's got it taken care of. Amen. Amen. When you think of yourself less, you will be blessed. 
You know, over and over, the Bible says that God blesses those who are humble. In fact, you're not going to find any trait that God blesses more in the Bible than humility. He says stuff like, you know, God lifts the humble. He saves the humble. He guides the humble. He teaches the humble. He sustains the humble. Jesus even says, you know, those who are exalted will be humbled, and those who are humbled, who will humble themselves, will be exalted. It's because when you humble yourself, when you humble yourself before God, when you humble yourself before people, not because you're inferior, because you are secure in who you are, that is the doorway to more and more blessing in your life. If you believe that, say amen. 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 Is this helpful in this place this morning? If you want to be blessed, if you want to live a life that is happy and full and have relationships that are sweet and strong, it's about learning to be more humble. It's about learning to practice giving preference to others. It's about learning to stoop down to make others great. Tell a person to give them a high five and say, I want to stoop down to make you great. Amen. Amen. Final thing we're going to close today. If you want to grow in humility, Number four, be quick to surrender your plans to God. Be quick to surrender your plans to God. See, this is what we often do with our plans. We make our own plans about how we want to see our lives. We make up our own plans about our relationships, our job, our future, what school we want to go to, what house we want to live in. And we do all that. We plan it all ourselves. And then we go to God and go, God, could you please bless this? God, please bless this. We might not necessarily hear from God. We just assume that our will is now God's will. And then we go and we start doing these plans. We start administering these plans, and then things blow up in our face. Things don't go the way we want. Things don't happen the way we want. Things don't happen when we want them to. And what do we do? We go back to God and go, God, it's all your fault. When in fact, you never really involved God in the first place. See, that's what we do a lot when it comes to our plans. And that's what pride is. The Bible says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Is that if you are someone who is making all these plans for yourself, but you don't include God, you don't involve God, you don't consult God, you're not living God's way, and you're just expecting God to bless whatever you think of, then that is called pride, and the Bible says God opposes the proud. But if you will humble yourself and surrender your plans to God and say, God, I want to do things your way. God, I trust you that you have a better plan for my life. I trust you that you have a better way when it comes to relationships. I trust you when it comes to you have a better way for my future, my job, my finances. That if I seek your kingdom first, you will add everything else that I need. If I will trust you and surrender that way, then everything else I need will be added. If you believe that, say amen. 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 Keyboard just a little softer, please. Just a little softer. Thank you. Thank you. Praise God. Praise God. We've got a humble, humble worship team. Praise God for them. Humility is about surrendering your plans to God. It's recognizing that I'm not God, that the world doesn't revolve around me. It's not about my agenda or my dreams, but it's about saying, God, my life is about following you. My life is about doing things your way. That is humility. Humility is recognizing that I need God and I need other people. Humility is trusting God with what is not in my control. You know, I remember when Charlene and I were first dating uh, we would write these letters to one another in a journal. And I showed you guys that journal. You guys remember that journal? Yeah, I remember I showed that journal to you guys. I read from that journal. It's kind of embarrassing, but hopefully you guys were, uh, you know, entertained by that. Um, I didn't show you something in that journal that day. But in that journal, in the back of the journal, there's a post-it note. It's a green post-it note. It's very small. And it's something that we wrote together back in 2001. We called it the plan. Everyone say the plan. 
And what was the plan? See, the plan was our plan for the next 10 years of our lives. Do you guys want to see what our plan was for what the, text, the next 10 years of our lives would be? This back in 2001, hadn't gotten married yet, we're just dating. This is the plan. The plan was, uh, do you have that? Okay. Um, from 2002 to 2004, Shar, at the time, she was working in New York. She was an investment banker, working really long hours in an investment bank in, in Manhattan. She uh, was going to work in New York for the next two, three years and continue, uh, you know, in that job. And I was going to go and do my master's degree in law at the same time. That was from 2002 to 2004. And then from 2004 to 2005, Shar would come back to Vancouver to plan our wedding. I guess we needed a whole year to plan that wedding. I guess it was, I don't know why, but uh, we, we did. And then, and then we're going to get married in July 2005. That was the plan. I want to say that was the plan. And then from 2005 to 2007, you know what our plan was? We were going to live in Vancouver. We're going to enjoy life in Vancouver as a married couple, you know, uh, have romantic dates, go walk on Jericho Beach, go to Steveson Dyke and walk hand in hand, do all that stuff. That was our plan, all right? And then we moved on, uh, keep on going, is that in July 2007, we thought, you know what, it would be, oh, be cool to be part of planting a church one day. We don't know why, but we just love to be part of planning a church. And then in 2009, we said that was, that our plan is JB and Charlene would start a family and call their first son David. All right. That was the plan. Everyone say that was the plan. Did this plan end up becoming reality? No, it didn't. Let me show you what happened versus the plan. All right. So in 2002, 2004, Char's supposed to work in New York. I'm supposed to get my master's degree in law. You know what happens? In the same year that we made that plan, in 2002, Charlene quits her job in New York. All right, and I never end up applying to a master's degree in law. I end up going to seminary instead. 2004 to 2005, Charlene, she's supposed to be back in Vancouver planning our wedding, uh, and so you know, in, in July 2005, we're supposed to be married. You know what? When we got married, we got married two years earlier. We got married in 2003, September the first. All right. Next is that back in 2005, 2007, we're supposed to be living in Vancouver. You know what was happening 2005 and 2007? We were not living in Vancouver. We were living in Taiwan. All right, and I was sweating even more than I am right now. You know, and, and, you know, it was for four years that we lived in Taiwan. Totally different from the plan. In July 2007, we we're supposed to be planning a church. Well, this is kind of interesting. Is that in August 2007, our church in Taiwan, our parent church called Torch Covenant Church, commissioned uh, me and Pastor Charlene to plant a church, a new church in Vancouver uh, in August 2007 called Thrive Church. All right. Um, and, uh, and in 2009... JB and Charlene are supposed to start a family and call their first son David. That's the plan. You know what it ended up being? We didn't have our son until 2012. JB and Charlene start a family and they, they call their son, not David, but Bradley. Don't ask me why. Okay? Now, why do I share all of that with you? Why do I share you, with you the, the, the intimate details of our plans for the first 10 years of a relationship? It's to show you that nothing, almost nothing, turned out the way we planned. Almost nothing. Almost nothing. Other than the fact that we went ahead and we actually got in, in a way that we didn't expect, got involved in planning a church, nothing else happened the way that we planned. It's not because we didn't work hard. It's not because we didn't try. But it's because there were so many other things that God was doing. So many things that were beyond our control. Good things, hard things. Doors that opened, doors that never opened. And there were so many things that we could not predict. But I can I say, like looking back, that God had a better plan looking back at all those years? Absolutely. God's plan was so much better than our plan. Amen? God had a better plan than anything we could ask for, imagine, or architect for ourselves. If you believe that, give God a big, big hand here in this place right now. God had a better plan. And I, in fact, when I look back at these past 15 years, I think of this verse from Ecclesiastes 3.11. Why don't you read it with me in a loud voice? What does it say? It says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. 
See, maybe you're here today and you are quite stressed about the future. Maybe you've tried your very best to see certain doors open and they have not opened. Maybe you've tried your best and you're frustrated because there's still so much that feels like it's out of your control and you even, even start to question, what is the point of even me trying? If that's you in this place, then can I tell you this? Stop worrying. Stop worrying. Why? It's because God is a God who makes all things beautiful in his time. It doesn't all depend on you. It never has. It never will. So don't expect to have it all figured out right now. You don't need to. Because if you will simply do your best with what is in your hand right now and take wise steps of faith with what God places in your hand right now, and if you will trust Jesus that he will take care of everything else that is not in your control, you will be able to say, God had a better plan. Amen. God, who loves you more than you know, has a better plan. God, who sent his only son for you, has a better plan. God, who sacrificed Jesus Christ, if he did that, what, how would he not give you everything else that you need? It's because God loves you. If you believe that, give God a big, big hand here in this place right now. You don't have to worry, because God has a better plan. Tell the person, he has a better plan. He has a better plan. Romans 8.28 says it this way. Read in a loud voice with you. One, two, three, it says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Say it one more time with me. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Everyone say, in all things. Everyone say, all things. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. In all things, in your most disappointing things, in your most surprising things, in your most frustrating things, in those things that you don't understand and cannot control, in all of those things, God is at work. Even when you have no way of controlling it, God is at work in those things, working it out for your good and working it out for his glory. And so you don't have to worry. You don't have to fret because God is in control. If you believe that, give God a big, big hand here in this place right now. Amen. So here's a question for you this morning, is what is one area of your life where you need to surrender to God? What is one area of your life where you need to trust that Jesus will work it out even when you don't know how it's gonna work out? What is one area of your life where you need to surrender your plans to God? Maybe it's in the area of your family or in your studies. Maybe it's in the area of you just had a plan and, and it just, it, obviously the plan got interrupted and you don't know what to do anymore. It's trusting God that even when your plan is gone, his plan is still there. Yes. Amen. Maybe it's in the area of a relationship that you care about. Trusting him and saying, God, I surrender that to you. Maybe it's in the area of finances and you're just making it right now or just barely and you wonder what's going to happen and you're worried. It's about saying, God, I trust you. You have a better plan. Maybe it's about your future or the health of someone you love and there's so much that you can't control, but you say, God, I trust you that in all things, you're working for the good of those who love you, who are called according to your purpose. And so I'm not going to worry. I'm simply going to be humble and I'm going to surrender my plans to you. If you believe that, say amen. amen. If you will trust in Jesus if you will seek his kingdom first, if you will humble yourself and surrender your plans to him, you too will find that he makes all things beautiful in his way and in his time. Let's all finish off with 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Last verse for today. Why don't you read it with me in a loud voice? 1, 2, 3, it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, and he will lift you up 
in due time. Amen. Have you learned something in this place this morning? Are you blessed because you're here this morning? Can we stand up to our feet and let's give Jesus some praise this morning? Can you give him a big hand and a big shout together right now? Come on, let's give God some praise right now. The God who has a better plan. The God whose plans are bigger than yours. Come on, give God a big hand, a big shout in this place right now. Come on. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I just want to lead you in this time where you can respond to the word of God that's been spoken to your heart this morning. Today we've been learning about the power of humility. We've been learning that humility is not about looking down on yourself and thinking you're nothing. Much the opposite. It's about putting others before yourself, all the while being secure in who you are, in your worth, in your value. It's about being quick to admit when you're wrong. It's because when you're secure in who you are, you can say sorry. You can learn from others. You can give preference to others. You can surrender your plans to God because you know that you're valuable in this sight. Maybe you're here today and you realize that you need humility more than anything today. And uh, maybe it's in your relationships, for the sake of your future, you realize that humility is what you need more than anything else. And if that's you in this place, then I'm gonna encourage you to do something we did at the beginning of the service, is that we talked about how sometimes your physical posture can reflect and even ignite the attitude of your heart. And so I'm just gonna invite you to just raise your hand to God right now as a sign that you wanna be a more humble person. Raise your hand to God as high as you can. Let the height of your hands reflect how much you need humility in your life. Let the height of your hands reflect how much you wanna trust God with your life. In fact, raise both hands to God just as your way of saying, God, I wanna be more humble. God, I need humility. God, I want to surrender my life and my plans to you. God, I want to show preference to others. God, I want to, I want to be quick to apologize and slow to criticize. God, I want to be you know, humble enough to seek advice and to learn from others. If that's you in this place, why don't you just lift up your hands to God right now. And just before I lead you in prayer, I'm going to invite you to pray in your own words right now. From your heart, just respond to God this morning. Start talking to God with your, from your heart, with your own words right now. Just start talking to Him and just respond to what you've been listening to this morning. Let's all just pray loud here in this place right now. Come on, church. Let's all pray pray loud right now. Jesus, we want to thank you today. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. Praise you, Father. Praise you, Lord. Praise your name. Praise you, Jesus. Praise you, Father. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you so much. Praise your name. Praise you, God. Praise you, God. Why don't you just Pray this prayer, repeat this after me, and say, Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, thank you, thank you for showing me today the power of humility. I realize my heart is so prideful. I'm so full of pride. And I so need to be more humble. And so for the sake of my relationships, for the sake of my home, for the sake of my family, for the sake of the future. Please help me to be more humble, to practice humility, to practice admitting when I'm wrong, to practice learning from other people, to practice letting others go first, to practice surrendering my plans to God. Thank you that you are so humble and that the more I draw close to you, the more I can be humble too. Thank you that you stoop down to make me great. Help me to stoop down and make others great as well. And you will lift me up 
in your time and in your way. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Can we've got a big hand, a big shout in this place together right now. Praise God. Come on. I'm going to give you 20 seconds to give God the biggest praise you can to our humble, almighty God. Give him praise. Give him worship. Give him your thanks. Shout to God in this place right now. Come on. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Let me pray for you right now. Heavenly Father, you see the hands that are lifted. You see the hearts that are open. You see the lives that are presented before you right now who long for more humility. I pray, God, for them today. That, Father, starting today, we will be people who are quick to apologize and slow to criticize. We'll be people who give preference to others. We'll be people who are not afraid to ask for advice and to learn from those more experienced than us. We will not be afraid to surrender our plans to you. Thank you, God, for teaching us what true humility is. That it's not looking down on ourselves or thinking less of ourselves. It's about looking to you and finding our worth and finding that when we stoop down to make others great, you do the same for us as well. We thank you, Jesus, for all that you have planned, the plans you have for us, plans to prosper us and not to harm us. Thank you, Jesus, that because of you, the best is always yet to come. And so we give you praise and we give you thanks. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Give God a big hand, a big shout together right now. Amen. Lastly, lastly, if you've never received Jesus Christ into your life before, if you've never opened up your heart to say, Jesus, I need you in my life, and I ask you to forgive me of my sins, then today is a day of opportunity for you. Today is a day of salvation. Today is a day that God has appointed for you to open up your heart to Jesus. Would you do that this morning? It's the most awesome decision you ever make. It'll change your life from the inside out. Give you a peace that the world cannot give. Why don't you pray this with me if you want to do that? Why don't you pray this together with others who are doing this for the first time? Even if you prayed this before, pray this with you right now. Say, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus thank, you thank you that you died on the cross, on the cross to, pay for my sins, to pay for my sins, that you rose to life, you rose to life so I could have a brand new, so start. Have a brand new start. And so I welcome you today. Say, forgive me of my sins. I invite you in to be my Savior and my King. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Give God a big, big hand here together right now.